Welcome to the De-School Yourself podcast, healing the 15,000-hour infliction of public school. Hosted by Zach Slayback and Jeff Till. Now, there are many people who work in schools who believe that education, in fact, is the main point of what they're doing and who are trying very hard to educate the people in their charge. However, the problem is that the whole system they're working in, the way it's set up and the way it is organised, is hostile to that golden endeavour, so that they're in the unfortunate position of constantly trying to push water uphill, if you will, and any success they have is gained against the odds. What we need to realise is that education and schooling are not the same thing. In fact, because we think that schooling is the same thing as education, we have a radically impoverished idea of what education is and could be. Why, for example, do we assume that education should only take place at one stage of a person's life? Education is something that can take place at any stage in someone's life, and indeed should do. Why assume that we have to educate people at the same age altogether? Surely this is a crazy way of doing it. Why do we have to deliver education in the highly structured and formalised way that schools require us to do it in? Education is something which will be central to most people's lives. What we need to do is to get away from the idea that schools are the only way in which we can deliver education. This instalment is called Schooling versus Education. And now I'm going to do my best, John Stossel, and say, Zach, without schooling, how would anyone ever learn? Right. No, I think that's a that's a great question to kind of start with, Jeff. Uh, you need the mustache first, though. I, I, I get that people can't see this, but you need the mustache if you want to do the John Stossel impersonation. But I think that raises an interesting point that's kind of hidden in here that we talked a little bit about on the history of schooling, right? And I think that one of the most nefarious or one of the most problematic things that has happened in the history of schooling and education, especially in the United States, is that school has co-opted the language of learning and the language of education. Anytime you want to be thinking about or talking about education or learning, people almost always will immediately jump to ideas around school. I mean, it's so bad that I've worked on a couple book projects now where I want to get covers made for the books. And the books are about learning, right? They're not necessarily mm -hmm. about school. And it's really, really hard even for me to figure out symbolism that is not school-related that has to do with education and learning. Because the vast majority of it out there is. Think about like a chalkboard or think about a, a number two pencil or an apple or all these other things that you think about when you think about learning or books, right? Textbooks, right? So the language has been co-opted in the first place. I think that the key concept at the end of the day, and this is a point that our guest earlier, Peter Gray, made, and we've referenced John Taylor Gatto on multiple occasions. He's made this as well. The key point, the key distinction that, that education and learning turn on or education and schooling turn on is the point of coercion. Because on any kind of thing, if you don't choose to do it, if someone's making you do something, you're not going to do it as well and with as much skin in the game as if you chose to do it. That tends to apply for almost anything anywhere on the spectrum. If somebody tells you like, hey, you need to go fill out TPS reports, that's going to be something that you're going to do, but you're not going to probably do it particularly well. They can make you do it a little bit better up to a point of diminishing returns by threatening you with punishments or threatening you with rewards if you do it well or you do it poorly. But you're not actually going to feel like this is something that you are involved in, that you're invested in, that you really choose to be the driving force behind. And that's the point that schooling and education come down to, right? 
Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily opposed to the idea of people sitting in classrooms to learn. I think that for most people, that's probably not the best way to learn. But some people, you will meet some people. I met someone recently, for example, who can really much only learn through lecture. Uh, that applies to some people. But if you force that person to be in the lecture, they're not going to get nearly as much out of it as if they chose to be in the lecture. And I think that's the key point. How are people going to learn without school? How are people going to become educated without school? The way that people become educated have become educated without school for hundreds and thousands of years. The way that people become educated today after they leave school. Chances are the vast majority of things that you know, that you use at your job, the vast majority of things I know that I use at my job, and the vast majority of the things, tools, and resources that we know to just navigate our lives as happy people are not things we picked up in school. Yeah. That's the reality. Yeah, absolutely. The the appetite for learning, at least for myself and my children and the people I know, like you and our friends, uh, is insatiable. Uh, we're just incredibly um, starving for new information and to learn new things. Uh, right. And, and I think that's partly, you know, I, I don't know if I was like that when I felt very schooled. It, it's only now that I, I've taken control and that I feel like it's me in the driver's seat that all of a sudden... Uh, learning isn't this chore. It's not something to be dreaded. It's not something um, that I feel obligated to do. It's it's something that it, I feel that empowers me, that makes me happy, uh, and it's something that I pursue on a, on a daily basis. And well, I I remember one of the things that frustrated me so much about school was I I knew since I was quite young that I liked to learn. It was something I just enjoyed doing. But oftentimes school got in the way of that. Because either I'd wake up at an ungodly early hour that a young child should not be awake at, and then I'm exhausted for the rest of the day working through school, or it's making me focus on things that I would rather learn about either in different ways or I just would not like to learn about. The opportunity cost was extremely high. So it wasn't until I actually got to college I thought, great, here would be this opportunity for me to actually learn the things I wanted to learn. And it got marginally better, you know. You had a recent podcast where you're talking about this, and it gets marginally better, but it's still that you can't choose certain ways about learning things, and you still are there for a reason at the end of the day that is not your own. So mm-hmm. it wasn't until I actually dropped out of school, <laughs> I dropped out of college, that I got the opportunity to become as educated as I wanted to be all along. Yeah, and I think uh, this reflects into probably i'm i'm going to say like the majority of americans uh lives who who constantly feel frustrated with their low pay grade and their inability to advance themselves in the workplace or uh find a job that's that's more fulfilling or whatever with this constant barrier of they don't have the skills to to do it cuz mm-hmm. all, all advancement in work and career is based on what you know and what you know is is based on how you learn and right. And this is this is becoming increasingly true as well, that being a part of the basic knowledge economy that has existed for like the last 20 years because of different kinds of advances in things like communication, because of advances in uh, different things like artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. If you were just part of that basic economy, that basic knowledge economy, and you just learn one skill, one point, and then you just do it over and over again, you're going to be replaced. So the unhappiness that you're talking about, Jeff, is just going to increase in time if people can't figure out how to learn and how to love learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just going to the frustration is going to uh, 
to, to get worse. Um, people are still already, if we looked at the last, uh, not to bring politics into this, but the last election is we had our, you know, our presidential winner promising everyone the return to uh, the factory job where you literally just learned one rote skill, you know, the, the turn of one one wrench or whatever. And it, it's 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 almost it's almost kind of cruel or there's a tremendous sadness or something to think that people are uh, so desperate to go back to to not having any learning whatsoever. And a lot of this has to be pinned on, you know, generation of, after generation of being schooled and right. having learning associated with this that everyone's just desperate to um, go back to only having uh, such a small skill set that, uh, you know, they would elect a monster to to implement it. Well, so let's go through some of the other stuff about school learning. Let's 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 continue our, our criticism of uh, of school learning, such as uh, we have a list here um, that includes things like memorization, uh, instructor based learning. Uh, learning by not doing testing and grades, et cetera. Well, yeah. So, when, when when people think about when you think about education, what are the things you think about? And they're oftentimes these things that are associated directly with school. And I think that the key concept, like I noted, is this element of coercion. But what's also behind an element of coercion or a felt element of coercion, whether it's implied or explicit is that this is kind of like drudgery, right? It's something you have to do. It's not something you get to do. You don't get to learn. You have to go do it. You have to be schooled. You have to sit in the desk. You have to walk in the line. You have to take these tests. You have to learn this subject. And it's something that when you don't actually give somebody the option for whether or not they're choosing to do it and they actually get to do it, they're not going to feel like it is something that they get to do, if that makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. How about um, what do you, what's your opinion on memorization? That's which is probably so, uh, what would you say like eighty percent of of academic schoolwork. It's it's definitely a sizable chunk. I mean, even when you get to the collegiate level, when you're doing things like try. I, I spoke to an academic the other day, for example, who uh, prolific writer, very very an excellent writer, very accomplished in his field, and I was talking to him about becoming advanced in uh, certain certain academic disciplines. Economics is actually one of the few ones where this isn't really the case. But really all you have to do in some disciplines is you just need to memorize some jargon. (laughs) And then if you can memorize that jargon and then you can repeat it time and time again – People are going to think that you're just you're just an insider. You're just intelligent. You're learned. You're learned in this area. So, my point here is that it applies even at the higher education level. I, I mean, Nassim Taleb, the author of "Fooled by Randomness" and "Any Fragile," has a line in "Fooled by Randomness," which is hilarious, where he says, "If your writing could be replicated by a random like sentence generator in a computer, that means you probably have very very bad writing." And that's how a lot of writing is for people who come out of college, for a lot of people who come out of high school. They, even the people who are quote unquote good writers, this is something I've written about on a couple different occasions. They've just memorized certain ways of writing that in reality, and we can talk about why this is the case, but in reality aren't actually good mm-hmm. ways of writing. I mean, you, you work, the vast majority of your time is working with writing. So you've probably seen this as well with recent grads, but on the more simplistic side of the situation where you, you see memorization, this is a common complaint that I think a lot of people have against the school system. Like if you talk to people about reforming school, 
almost everyone who agrees with you, which is also, again, almost everyone, usually except for people who are entrenched interests, they'll say to you, yeah, you know, it's way too much memorization. And when they're thinking about memorization, they're oftentimes thinking of what I kind of call blunt memorization, which is just Mm -hmm. you memorize facts, right? You memorize facts and you regurgitate them onto a piece of paper. This is how a poorly taught or a poorly facilitated history classes is done, right? A poorly facilitated or poorly taught history class is just like, I'm going to give you a quiz where you have to fill in all these names and dates uh, about like the American Revolution, right? A well-done history class would explore with you that there's multifaceted interpretations of history. There's multiple directions in which that history was continuing at once, that it wasn't necessarily being driven by these great men, as we had noted in the earlier conversation, and that it's something that you really can't base entirely around memorization. Yeah. Now – Can I just do a quick quick anecdote? Just actually not even an anecdote. It's just a complaint uh, about my anthropology class that I failed twice. Um, and I, I absolutely love the class because we, uh, had these, uh, engaging conversations about, uh, the, the first use of tools and, and what agriculture, you know, meant, meant to emerging societies and, and the role of language and how that played in, in transferring knowledge. And, and it was just, you know, very fascinating to talk about ancient peoples and the, the different things that changed. But every time I would get to the test, um, the, Knowledge, the knowledge that we were tested on would all of a sudden switch to what date was this archaeological, you know, burial site, you know, found on, you know, and which coast of France was, you know, this, you know, this skeleton found. And I could never put the two together that we would have these engaging conversations about the implications of, you know, emerging technologies or whatever. And then the test would then turn to uh, the blunt memorization of facts and dates. And right. I could never put, I, I could, you know, I even had to meet with the teacher and, and, you know, go through and say, look at all this stuff I learned. And it was completely irrelevant in the schooling model. So I was actually punished yeah. severely for what I think is, is the more valuable of, of the knowledge, you know, knowing the implications. And as now as, as a professional writer uh, who has to write about, uh, you know, about emerging technologies and whatever, it's still, my, my instinct was right over the schooling uh, model. It is the implications right. and the, the points of interest. It's not the date and time uh, that something particularly happened. Anyway, that was just my anecdote. Well, I mean, it's not like it's not like in the real world you aren't going to have to memorize things at some point, but the things that you're going to have to memorize are going to be things that you memorize them for a greater context, right? Taking it back to this key point here. For example, um, I was doing over the summer some courses in Amazon Web Services uh, IT architecture, right? And a lot of what AWS is what it's also known as, a lot of what AWS is is just jargon. It's just a lot of jargon that you have to memorize at a certain point. But it's much, much easier to memorize if you know, like, oh, I need to know this thing about EC2 instances because that's where I build my app through. So memorization isn't necessarily a bad thing if it's not the core the core metric by which you're <laughs> trying to figure out whether or not you learn something, right? Like your story, your story is a great example of that, that it's the core metric by which someone measured that you actually learned something, even though you learned a ton of stuff that wasn't directly connected to the memorization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you, get, and, did you hear my little bit on learning like a programmer in my last podcast? Yeah, yeah. So just, just a real, real quick recap of that is... Uh, when, when you're actually in school, you're often given a huge raft of 
uh, inclusive or comprehensive information that you're, you're taught to memorize, uh, regardless if you're going to apply any of it or all of it. Uh, but when you learn like a programmer, you're always only learning the thing that you need to do to solve a specific task. So every piece of information you learn is completely relevant to the outcomes that you want to have. And you never invest any time learning information that is not relevant to the outcomes that you want. And every piece of information that you want to learn, you're also deeply interested in. And you, you actually know the purpose for why you're learning it. Whereas in if we were to take a history class or my hypothetical anthropology class or whatever, in school you're often just given uh, this boatload of information without any kind of uh, key to what's relevant or not relevant. And, you know, I, I think that's kind of a uh, kind of a terrible thing that they do in school. Yeah. Yeah, and, and when you get to higher levels or you get to more enlightened schools, they like to think that they're not doing as much memorization. But usually what it just is is it's memorization of systems rather than blunt memorization of, like, facts, right? So, again, history or anthropology are really good examples. Even English classes are really, really good examples of uh, blunt memorization. I remember even up through 11th, 12th grade, you, we would have to do uh, vocabulary quizzes in one of my English classes where pretty much all you had to do was you just had to memorize the definition of words <laughs> and then match up yeah. those definitions with those words. And this was like an advanced, an advanced English class as well, right? It's Most of those words, like... I might know the definitions to them, but I know the definitions to them not because I memorized them, but because I actually got a chance to use them in my life. Because I got a chance to actually go out there and write for real people who would actually read those words. So you see later on, you see like a memorization of systems kind of thing. And you see this really, this is really, really popular in mathematics. Um, to it, it applies in analytic philosophy as well, where... If you can memorize the way the system works and then you can just kind of like plug and chug different values into it, then that's what passes for actually knowing how these things work. When in the reality of the day, you have to go to the higher level, uh, the higher level mathematics, the higher level philosophy and actually delve into like why <laughs> do these systems mm -hmm. exist and should they exist in the first place? Let's talk testing and grades. In, in real life, we're never really given an arbitrary test, and we're not really graded on things in such a simplistic way. Yeah, I think that one of the most problematic things about testing in particular, and grading in particular, is that it kind of teaches you that knowledge exists on this two-way spectrum, that you are either, you're, you've either at an F level, a D, C, B, A level, uh, when in reality, oftentimes what it is is that knowledge is acquired in a bit more of a three or four way kind of spectrum, right? So rather than seeing like an arrow that on one side you have, uh, on the left side you have no knowledge and on the right side you have a lot of knowledge, it's more like you have some knowledge in this area, you have some knowledge in this area, you're missing a little bit of knowledge in this area, and the, the amount of knowledge that you have can complement itself in the other areas. So you need to get better in a certain area, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your knowledge of mathematics or that your knowledge of English or that your knowledge of politics or your knowledge of science, biology, whatever, is actually at like an F or C level. Again, going back to what you were noting, Jeff, in the real world, and this applies to even people who are, who are in these fields, like people who are mathematicians, for example, or physicists. In the real world, you learn what you need to know. And sometimes you need to know theoretical concepts to guide your thinking and guide your ability to choose certain tools, but sometimes you don't need to know those. 
So, but in school, if you fail a test, for example, that's on a totally theoretical topic that has nothing to do with what you want to achieve, nothing to do with what you want to do with your life, and you do well in the rest of them, you're still going to be told, like, hey, you're an average student. Because that's just how that kind of weighting system works. So there are actually examples of uh, educational contexts where testing and grades have been removed entirely. And oftentimes what you do find is that people have a greater interest in learning the things that they're learning because there's this secondary point here that I want to hit on is that testing and grades are really carrots and sticks, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you get terrified. I remember in school, I was terrified of the concept of getting a, a bad grade. I was not terrified necessarily, Jeff, of not knowing what I should know, right? I was terrified yeah. though of the bad grade, which is an entirely different thing than the actual knowledge that I've consumed or the knowledge that I've internalized, the knowledge that I've woven into my belief system about the world. It's particularly cruel because it involves uh, not just the system and the teacher, but the parents as well uh, in, in this sort of uh, abusive punishment system and uh, arbitrary reward system. Uh, for performing the educational task, uh, it it, uh, it it's saddening because um, it's even often sometimes told, uh, sold to us that it's you know preparing us you know for adulthood or preparing us for the real world. Right. If you're listening to this and you're an adult or you're a young adult and you think your job is going to sound like testing in grades, then go find another job. <laughs> that that would be my advice to you because companies like that jobs like that probably aren't going to exist for much longer anyway so let's let's talk about let's be let's, i'm going to criticize a couple learning methods here one is instructor-based learning where mm. almost all uh all schooling is very very rarely is it self-directed and most and most of the time it uses the lecture which was a is basically a five thousand year old teaching technology of having you know which was necessitated you know, back in ancient whatever, you know, the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks, where you the only way you could really, you know, pre-writing, you know, uh, pre-literacy was to have someone stand in front of a crowd of people and talk. And for some reason, despite uh, having mass literacy and computers and everything else, the lecture is still the preferred method of teaching in the classroom here in 2016. All right. Uh, it, it, it also teaches us that we're not really capable of learning on our own, you know, that everything sort of has to be uh, fed to us uh, if through the schooling system. And then the schooling also um, is always uh, sort of learning, you know, through the textbook and through the lecture and almost never by doing. In certain contexts, if you want to learn theory, then the way you learn theory is that you theorize, right? <laughs> Which is actually the, the action of doing learning theory. Um, the whole idea of, of learning by not doing or the learning by theory first and then you go out and you test it in the real world is astonishing to me that it's still so popular. Uh, if, if we don't look at the actual economic reasons why it's so popular, but it's astonishing to me why it's so popular still because it's so obviously wrong. For everything else that we do in our lives, we don't read up on the subject for 14 years and then go do it. We don't read up on the subject for a year and then go do it. Oftentimes, you read a little bit on it to a point where you can actually do something with that knowledge. Then you go try to do something with that knowledge. You see if it works or not, very much like what you were describing about learning uh, to program. And that's something that 
a lot of the people who I have talked to who are either autodidacts or they taught themselves how to pick up a new skill and go into a new trade have echoed. It's that learning is one of these things that has to be applied by doing because if you don't actually apply it by doing, then you don't absorb that information that you've been learning on theory anyway. You know, the example I think we gave in an earlier episode is riding a bike. Imagine if we taught riding a bike like how we teach most things through the schooling context, right? You would read about a bike for 10 years. You would hear about bikes from people. They would show you pictures of bikes. They would show you videos of bikes. You may even take a field trip to a lot full of bikes and maybe watch one person ride a bike. You'd take the bike apart and you'd put it back together again. You would even do bike simulations. Most of the people you'd be learning about bikes from haven't ridden a bike in a very long time or hate bikes. And then they would tell you, go ride, right? That's totally yeah. preposterous. <laughs> That's so silly to even think about. Or sports, too. This is this is another one of the reasons that I find the learning context in you know, mass compulsory school particularly odd because most of these compulsory schools also have extracurricular sports activities afterwards. And sports is taught in a way that's much more like how most people who can learn very quickly and can teach themselves actually learn. It's taught through what is called in sports coaching where you go out, you do something, you come back, somebody gives you a little bit of feedback. You might read a little bit on the theory of it. You go out, you try it again, you see if it works and you come back and you just keep doing that over and over and over again. The learning by not doing the number one, most dangerous thing about it as a system, I think is that there's no feedback mechanism. Mm, you have yeah. no idea. You have no idea whether what you're learning or not, a, if you're learning it or B, if it's actually worth learning or C, even if it is worth learning that you that it's the best way of doing the thing that you're trying to achieve. It's almost it's a joke in school that like sort of a well-known conventional wisdom that everybody, you know, forgets immediately after they take the test. You know, it because the the knowledge wasn't attached to relevancy or to application uh nor actually proven to be real, you know, uh, workable in the real world. It's not even regrettably forgotten, but probably productively forgotten. And that's sort of the punchline or the joke of all schooling anyways, is that you suffered through all of this memorization, this blunt memorization, this learning by not, uh, by not doing, you know, you, you suffered through the lectures you, uh, and the theory, and then you, you dump it all anyways. Yeah, all I got at the end of the day was this lousy piece of paper. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is, uh, this is depressing me. Mass compulsory school just is not set up for some kind of system of critical thinking. It's it, you're, What you're doing is you're essentially batching the delivery of knowledge to people, right? And you can't batch that knowledge. If you have a room of 30 kids, you can't batch that knowledge in 30 different batches directly to them, have them come back to you with 30 different interpretations of it, and then try to engage with them on whether or not that's correct. That's just not how the system is set up. Now, whether that's nefarious, nefarious or not, that's totally up to the interpretation of the listener. But the school system is not designed for that kind of system of critical thinking. So, you know, one of the things I wanted to say is the lecture is a 5,000-year-old technology, but also so is Socratic discussion. Mm -hmm. So is the idea of actually having a conversation and back and forth. And Socratic discussion is probably one of the best ways that you can actually learn theory, if not the best. Because it allows you to actually engage in the system of critical thinking. But if you've ever done a Socratic discussion with more than 10 people, you know it's really, really hard. Especially if you only have like 39 minutes to do it. 
I've done several. I, I've actually organized quite a few and I've participated in quite a few that anytime when we have more than 15 people and we have less than like 12 hours, we don't cover nearly everything we want to cover. So if all I was trying to do was to get these people to think that they were being delivered knowledge by me, I absolutely would not set it up in a format that would actually promote critical thinking because they'd walk away from it being like, I, I didn't cover half of what I wanted to cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if we go back to that nefarious, uh, the sinister idea that perhaps school was designed you know, to make us into compliant, obedient, conforming uh, workers, consumers, and soldiers, then critical thinking would be the last thing that the system would want to encourage which is tragic and sad. So if you've been listening to this thus far, you know, there've been multiple occasions uh, throughout the entire podcast where Jeff and I have said, you know, if this sounds like you keep listening, we are going to provide tools to you. We actually put together a a brief little self-examination of just questions you can reflect on, you can introspect on, and tools and processes that I've learned through my work on this matter and talking to other people about how your relationship with certain subjects can be gauged by your own reaction to them. So, like I said at the beginning of this section on schooling versus education in particular, is that schooling is something that's very coerced. And that means that most of the reasons why you learn are exogenous. They're reasons that are outside of you. They're not, you don't learn, you don't choose to learn. You're not learning for intrinsic reasons. So, Ask yourself, do you know how to learn intrinsically? Like, are you learning for intrinsic reasons? Do you enjoy learning or is this something that you're learning for something entirely outside of you? And if it is something that's entirely outside of you, is it something that you're choosing to learn for a reason that is connected to your beliefs and your values about the world? So like sometimes I will learn things, for example, that I, the intrinsic value of learning these things to me is very, very low. I actually don't think most things have intrinsic value. They have value related to what I want to achieve out of them. But I might learn a certain skill that for my job or for a certain task or a job I want to get that I know will make me fulfilled or will make me more money and then that money will help me live a more fulfilled life based on what I want to do, then I have reason to actually learn. So when you're learning, do you have reasons to learn? Do you have good reasons to learn? Why are you learning? Ask yourself those two questions first. And think specifically, if someone asks you, If I was sitting across from you right now and I asked you, do you like learning? Answer that question honestly and focus on the feeling in your gut. If the feeling in your gut is kind of one of unease, one that you get when you're lying, so think about lying about something in particular. Say that if your name is John, say, my name is Mary 15 times over, right? When you're trying to focus on telling me that your name truly honestly is Mary, that you're trying to be honest with me, And you know you're not being honest. So try to be honest with me and say that you love learning. If you don't, then that means if you you get an uncomfortable feeling in your stomach, that means that you have a conflict of statements here. Either you don't love learning or you uh, are focusing on something else entirely. So when you say, I don't love learning, then you should actually get a much more calm feeling in your stomach like you, you would say like, Uh, My name is John, if your name is actually John. So think about that. What images are conjured in your mind? What feelings do you get in your gut? Those are actually fairly indicative of the beliefs that you're holding about the world around you. Anytime you think about the world around you and the beliefs that you're holding contradicting the 
knowledge that you're getting about that world, that's the same feeling of uneasiness that you likely are getting in your stomach right now when you say, I love learning, and you don't actually love learning. Or if you say, I don't love learning, and you actually feel pretty <laughs> pretty at ease about that. And school is is often, we're going we're gonna to pin this on school as something that has ruined people's relationship with learning. Right, right. That that young people do love learning. They they pick it up for many many reasons. Uh, it's something that works really well for them as young young human beings in the world around them. Uh, and I think that if you actually took this would be an interesting study to do. If you actually took a large group of people and ran this kind of test on them when they were this kind of introspection test on them when they were kindergartners, and you ran it on them again when they were you know fifth graders you probably would see a decline in the number of people who, or an increase in the number of people who have that uneasiness, that uneasiness in their stomach, that feeling. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, I think it's the relationship of drudgery, of coercion that most people feel uh, by going through the school process. When you think about learning, do you feel exhausted when you think about learning something new? Like, uh, I, I'm going to have to go out, I'm going to have to buy this book, I'm going to have to sit down, I'm going to have to read the book, I'm going to have to go sit to, through a lecture for it, I'm going to have to take a test on it, I'm going to have to take all these notes. Or does it get you excited about the prospect of what you can learn? Can you actually connect the thing that you want to learn at the end of the day to that process? Or do you only focus on each step of the process? If you only focus on each step of the process, you're going to have a much harder time as well. Mm-hmm. This next question could be the mission statement for the entire uh, the entire podcast series here. Does your relationship or experience with learning block you from learning new things, ch taking chances, improving your self-worth or self-esteem? So this this is prob this might be the central frustration that people might anyone might feel when they're trying to wrestle uh, schooling out of their system. Yeah, this is I mean this is the central frustration if you're if you're unable to take risk or make advancements in your life and you don't know why look to your schooled self self-esteem is directly connected to a sense of self-efficacy the sense that if you try to do something in the world around you you will actually be effective at doing it and school oftentimes will teach you that that's not necessarily the case, especially with something like learning, which should come, if we go back to our conversation with Dr. Peter Gray, should come very, very naturally to you. It should be something that you don't need permission from somebody else to accomplish, that you don't need permission from somebody else to do. So that, that process of undermining your self-efficacy can have a very, very deleterious effect on one's own self-esteem. Let's talk about the upside of freeing yourself and developing a natural and healthy and productive relationship with learning. So I'm going to read here from the outline. I believe you wrote this. True learning exists when the subject willfully chooses to learn. This happens best when they have a strong enough belief to drive them to learn. In other words, a strong enough, quote, why for learning. Absolutely. It's the inverse of what we've been talking about on the subject of schooling, right? That what defines schooling as schooling, as we as we're thinking of it, is this coercion point. That you don't have a strong enough belief for why you have to do it. You don't have a strong enough reason for why you're doing it. You don't have a strong enough why. And that why, as I just noted, can be connected to any number of reasons. It could be that it's going to help you get a better job. It's going to be that it can help you live a more happy life. All these other things, whether they're directly connected to your values or a couple levels removed, it doesn't really matter. But anytime, if you're listening to this, anytime that you have learned something very, very well, meaning like you can do it in your sleep, that you are a peak performer at it, 
chances are it's something you chose to learn and it is connected very closely to your idea of what's important in your life. Uh, next in our outline, learning is lifelong and constant. I'm not even sure we need to expand on that. School teaches you this idea. You, it doesn't directly teach you this idea in, often, in many cases, but in internalize, you internalize this idea. And then the education industrial complex has an incentive for you to actually believe this idea that you have to learn in the context of school, right? Like, if you're ever unfortunate enough to be on the metro in Washington, D.C., you'll see all of these ads everywhere, pretty much at any stop except for the ones around the Pentagon when they they suddenly turn into ads for weapons, which is very odd. Uh, You'll see all these ads for like master's programs that you need to, that your knowledge is what's going to expand your career and that you need to keep learning. And, and it's conflating this idea of learning and education with this idea of you have to go back to school. So why are they doing that, right? They're not doing that necessarily to shove this idea down our, stro- our, our throats. They're marketers. They're responding to ideas they know that we already have about life and about learning around us already, which is that if I want to learn, if I want to increase my pay, whatever I want to do, I have to go do it in this school context, and I need to go get this credential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's actually the point right there is uh, when we say le- learning is life lifelong and constant, it's not just time-constrained uh, to those uh, those hours or those years that you're in the, the schooling institution, uh, and for, and the same way that it's not constrained to that that time, it's also not constrained to that method. So the way that we really learn is is almost always personal. It's it's how you learn in your work, in your hobbies, in your relationships. How you learn to do things that are fun, uh, things that are useful, things that are interesting. So it's the school model isn't just just a, a limitation on, on when you can learn, but it's also uh, on how you can learn. And as we, we just talked about, it might be one of the most, it, it might employ some of the most ineffective methods for learning that there are when you really compare to how real life learning happens. So the key point here is that true education, real education, the real process of learning, which you've probably experienced at certain stages in your life already, is something that you actively choose to do. You actively have reasons around why you want to do it, and those reasons are very tangible and real and connected to your life. But what that process actually looks like for a lot of people, especially after they've been through so many years of schooling, so many years of learning and conflating these ideas of education and school with each other, which even applies to Jeff and myself, that's why we're putting this series together, what that looks like for different people is kind of confusing and a difficult area to get started in. What we want to focus on in the next couple sessions is we want to focus on how can you actually approach the subject of learning? How can you actually approach the subject of, I want to learn something, I want to help people learn something, I want my children to learn something in a specific way, I want to be able to escape this kind of system, take practical, real steps to approach true learning, good education, that you actually experience, you internalize, and you weave into your belief system around around you. That's going to be the next steps, and I'm excited for getting into that. I know that thus far, a lot of this has seemed uh, a little depressing and a little dreary on certain occasions, but once you understand the limiting beliefs about the world that you have around education, that's only when you can actually take the steps outside to be very proactive in the way that you think and the way that you craft your life around education. Thank you for joining us. You can share this podcast and learn more by going to www.deschoolyourself.com. You may promote this series by rating or reviewing it on iTunes. 
Host Zachary Slayback is the author of the book, The End of School. Jeffrey Till is the author of the book, Rise Above School. Both are available in hard copy and Kindle at Amazon.com.